Dear Father, thank you for the worship, the songs that we sang uh, that tell of what you've done for us. Thank you that we worship a great God. Thank you for your great name. Thank you that you're all-powerful. Pray you'll be with us today, uh, calm my nerves, and have your words spoken so that people can hear what you have to say. Amen. You got to bear with me this morning. I left my notes at home. I didn't bring the right uh, cord for the computer, so <laughs> we'll see if we can get this going. All right. So when Dan asked me to speak this morning, I told him, well, you, he's going to have to give me something to speak about. Don't, don't, don't put that on me. Tell me what you want to talk about. So then he told me, and I thought, oh. <laughs> uh, he asked me to speak about something that's one of the most written topics in the Bible. And the Bible mentions this over 2,000 times, but we hardly ever talk about it at church. In fact, Jesus taught more on this than heaven and hell combined. But before I get into the topic or say what it is, I've got to set some context. Uh, I think just jumping into it wouldn't be fair. And so uh, I want to start with a background, where we are as Christians, an overview. So what's God's desire for us as his children? What's his will? Now we... In, in our church culture, we spend a lot of time talking about God's will, but I'm not talking about individually. I'm talking about collectively. What's the highest wish that God has for each one of us? Everybody in common. The answer I'd propose is that we all become like Jesus. It's the purpose of our Christian faith, that we become like Christ. And over and over in Scripture, there are verses talk about this, that that's the whole purpose. We become Christians, we make Jesus Lord of our life, and the rest of our life, we're being transformed to be more and more like him. So why does he want that? Why is he wanting us to become like Jesus? Why is that his will? That's his moral will, spelled out through the Bible. Well, the reason he wants that is it's the best thing that he can wish for us. As we become like Jesus, we get the fruits of the Spirit. So we all know the verse, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Well, stop there. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want a life characterized by love, joy, peace? So that's what God's got for us. That's what he wants for each one of us. Now, as Christians, we understand that we can't get that ourselves. That's a difference between Christianity and a lot of other religions. We can't work our way there. So, first of all, the good news about Christianity is God's done the work. Right? The work is finished. Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. Secondly, he gives us his Holy Spirit. Because... In ourselves, we can't transform. 
Only this Holy Spirit can change a life, can transform us, give us the power to do what we can't. And then third, he's given us the Bible. And most of the Bible very carefully details the moral will of God. It details out, this is how you should live. This is what you do to become like Jesus. This is what it looks like. Now, Dan's been speaking about Colossians. So we're in the book of Colossians, and this is a good example of how God sets out his moral will. I thought it was really interesting when Dan contrasted the first two chapters of Colossians with the last two chapters. The first two talk about our position in Christ, right? What, who are we? What has Christ done for us? We need to know this so that we don't lose heart. Without knowing this, without understanding who we are, the goal of becoming like Christ is impossible. So this is foundational. And then Dan went on to talk about chapter 3 and 4, which we don't like as much. I mean, what are they? They're rules, a list of do's and don'ts, and things that we, we kick against. But I look at the do's and don'ts as a necessary part. They're practical guidelines. In the picture here, you see a path. So we're on a path to become more like Jesus. What God does is he puts up signposts all along the side of that path to keep us on the path. If we break one of these signposts, we know we're not on the path. Now, it's not the end of the world. If we break a principle, we don't lose heart, but we know we need to make a correction. And we need these signposts because our hearts deceive us. It's easy to sit in a service and to look at our position in Christ and say, yes, I'm forgiven, yes, I'm free, yes, I believe it, and deceive ourselves. So the signposts are necessary for us to, to catch ourselves. They're not to use against other people. They're for ourselves to say, hang on, maybe I'm not trusting him as I should. So why do we need both of these types of teachings? Well, one I just mentioned, we easily deceive ourselves. And two, we have a real enemy. We have a real enemy that the last thing he wants for us is to get what God has for us. The last thing he wants is for us to become like Jesus, to have love, joy, peace. He'll, he'll give you adventure. He'll give you excitement. He'll give you anything, just not that. So we need this, this teaching. Now, how does our enemy work? How does he work against us? His number one way is lies. Jesus warned us he's the father of lies. And in our culture today, we are inundated with lies. Our entertainment is almost pure lies. Our advertising, our commerce, our everything. There's not a day that goes by that you aren't fed lies, that I'm not fed lies. And it's so hard to separate the lies from the truth. It's hard to even discover what lies we've unknowingly swallowed. Uh, I don't know how many music buffs there are here, but Matthew's got a short clip of music. Just give me a little wave of a hand if you know what song this is. We're not going to play the whole thing. 
but uh, if you can start it up there, Matthew. And depending on your generation, you may or may not know the song. It's a... Uh, Yeah, you don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> I'm here seeing some nods, right? <laughs> okay, so for those of you that don't know, this song is a quite a famous song. Quite a good song and musically. It's called Born to be Wild. So I was driving down the road not too long ago, and the song comes on, I say, yeah, it's a great song. And I hear myself singing Born to be Wild with a really bad voice. <laughs> <laughs> and it strikes me, what a lie. What the opposite, the complete polar opposite of Christianity. We are not born to be wild. We're born to submit, to obey. But that's not our culture. So our culture is you are really free if you're unrestrained. What does it mean in our culture to party? It's to let go, no restraints, go wild. There's an understanding in our culture that the natural state, your natural primal impulses are good because they're natural. And that leads into all kinds of other things, but that's the exact opposite of Christianity. God teaches us that in order to get love, joy, peace, we're submitting. We're obeying God, we're following the signposts, and we're becoming more like Jesus. And in fact, to be wild and to follow our primal instincts is Satan is telling us that lie for one very good reason. We'll never have love, joy, peace. That's how he's going to rob us. And it just struck me that how many other lies do I, you know, subconsciously hum to myself? Do I absorb without my mind? My mind should look at that and hear that and scream, no, <laughs> that's wrong. Okay, so I've sent, spent maybe a bit too much time sort of setting the context. Our purpose, our greatest purpose, is to become like Jesus. Right? That's, that's our goal. God sets out in Scripture how we should do that, how we should attain this. And we have an enemy that works against us, mainly by telling lies getting us to believe lies. So, what was it that Dan asked me to talk about? Well, the topic he gave me was on the board here. He gave me one word. Money. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, is money evil? Let me start there. No. Money's not evil. But then why does the Bible speak so, so much about it? Because it's dangerous. It reveals our hearts. It's one of these signposts that reveal what we're really thinking, what we're really practicing. 
So like everything else, we're surrounded by lies about money and I thought what I would do this morning is just look at some of the lies that are quite embedded in our culture and also look at God's main purposes for money. So what does the Bible say that the purpose of money is? What's a godly use of money? So I want to start with another slide and just take a look at the screen and tell me what comes to your mind when you see this. Financial freedom. Right. So there, there's, a, there's a cultural, a world's definition of this, and it goes back to the born to be wild. I have enough money that I'm unrestrained. Money's not holding me back. I have financial freedom. Like most lies, that is the opposite from God's view. The good news is, as Christians, we are supposed to have financial freedom. You're all meant to have complete financial freedom, and you can have it right now. But the Christian view of financial freedom is completely different. If you are content with what you have, and if I go one step further, if you are content and even willing for God to take away some of what you have, you have financial freedom. You're free from the wants of money. Your happiness does not depend on the money. So that's the Christian view. Christians are to be financially free. We're supposed to be free from the pressures because we don't need it. We know that's not our end goal. That's not where our happiness comes from. That's not what we're pursuing. And so we can have love, joy, peace, independent of finances. So I look at some of the lies. I mean, one of them would be success is measured by the amount of money you make. Now, that's not a really good lie. Satan's got better ones because even a lot of the people in society don't believe that. But there are others. So here's one here. Just believe Set your mind on a goal, work hard, and you can achieve it. That's rampant in our culture, right? That's, you hear that in sports events. You hear that everywhere. Just believe. We just work. I, I just committed myself. So this concept is based on the false idea that man can achieve true happiness apart from God. It put, puts confidence in human ability rather than giving proper recognition to God's enablement. And you see the verses here. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great. We have to recognize this as a lie. We cannot determine our success. How about this? I've worked hard for what I have. I deserve it. That's, I felt that. <laughs> I'm guilty. I've, I've bought that a time. Hey, I, I, I work for this. Again, this lie says that we are the source of our wealth rather than God. I worked hard for this. And the Bible specifically warns against us, against this. There's a passage from Deuteronomy where God is warning the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. 
or when, they, when they're in the promised land. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to, the, to observe his commands. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And with that come warnings of what happens if you forget the Lord, if you become proud. Another typical story for this is Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon who looked over his kingdom one day and said, look what I've built. And God immediately judged him and brought him really low, had him lose his mind for a time until he came to the place where he recognized, no, God gave me all of this. Lie number three, you can borrow your way to financial success. Use other people's money to leverage profits. This, this is a lie that's taught in every business school and in, in the Western world. And people like Bob, Kevin, Caleb, we're educated in this. So in school, I was taught to uh, how to calculate the optimal debt load for a company. I mean, I first thought of optimal debt load, and, but I know how much the Bible counsels against debt. It says you're, you're a slave if you're in debt. But as we were educated into how to calculate an optimal debt load, I noticed one thing. All of the models assume that things keep getting better. There may be bumps, you may hit a down year, but generally, you're gonna grow your way out of the problem, right? So all of the science, all of the math, it's like you're eventually going to increase your income enough to cover this debt. You're gonna borrow money and your business is gonna make more money to pay off the debt. So what does the Bible say? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And even if you go to the academia, if you take one of these debt calculation models and you forecast a crisis, a big downturn, what comes out of the model? The optimum debt load is zero. How about this one? You have a right to determine how you will use the money you earn. That actually doesn't sound too bad when I first saw it. I thought, well, yeah, I earned the money. I have the right to decide how to spend it. But again, it's totally opposite to the teaching all through the Bible. Everything we have is God's. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. All the money that we have is God's. We're only stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. Jesus told the parable of the three servants that were given money as stewards to take care of it. For the, for the master, for the owner. Well, even the wicked servant didn't grab the pot of money and say, hey, it's mine, I can spend it how I want. Since the money does not belong to us, and this is traditionally, years ago, this is why 
you tithe. This is why you're not taxed on your tithe, because in recognition that the money's not yours, you give the first part to God. You don't give what's left, you, you give the first part. Uh, when my dad was growing up, this was part of the culture. He gave his first paycheck to his parents in recognition that I have this because of you. Now, it didn't go so well when he asked me for that favor. <laughs> I didn't understand it. But this is what it was based on. You give the first part in recognition that I'm just taking care of this for you. It's really yours. The other thing is there are instructions through Scripture, and this gets into what I'll talk about in a bit about purposes of money, but as for the rich, they are to do good, to be generous, ready to share, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. You hear a lot about this next one, right? Even in Christian circles, I got a hot tip. I got a friend that invested in Bitcoin. He made 15 times what he invested, right? I got a business opportunity. We're going to make a ton of money. What's wrong with that one? What, what, what's, what's wrong with getting rich quick? And you'll hear Christians talk about it. Nothing wrong with being rich. No, <laughs> there isn't. But there's two things that go against God's principle. Right from Genesis 3, God taught that we would provide for our needs by the sweat of our brows. God's intent is that we work for our basic need. That's his design. It's not a curse. It's actually a blessing. Second, although it's not wrong to have money, if God has given you money and resources, he actually tells you to make the best of them. He's given you them, and you are to be a good steward of them. So it's not wrong to have money, but it is wrong. He warns many times in the Bible, it's wrong to want to get rich. It's most clearly stated in Timothy. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So my father used to tell me, if somebody comes to you with a great business idea and tells you you're going to get rich quick, say, I don't want it. And when they ask why, say, I don't want to get rich. Extreme, but as Christians, we're not to want to get rich. We're not to look for a lazy way to make money. This also, interestingly enough, matches with a lot of the academic literature. You can buy all kinds of books on finances, how to run your finances, how to get rich, how to retire with money. Uh, there's many variations, but a lot of them basically say, live on less than you make, put away 10% in savings for your whole life, and you'll retire happily. It's funny that that's a lot closer to biblical teaching. Two more. You should make it your goal to become financially independent so that you will not have to look for, to other people for help. Well, that's what we do. Um, 
I'm guilty. Uh, one of the curses for me is that pension statement or the savings account balance. It comes in, I, and I, I admit, I look at it and I go, has it gone up? Oh, good, it's gone up. And again, I have to catch myself. <laughs> It, it's, it's like a curse. I, I, I'm drawn to, oh, if I just get this much more, I, I can do this. Or, you know, I'm saving so that in my retirement, I have what I need. That's not a Christian thought. As Christians, we're not to be independent. We are to be interdependent on each other and dependent on God. That's becoming like Christ. Christ was fully dependent on God. He did what God told him to do. He said what the Father told him to say. He was fully dependent on God. And as the bride of Christ, we're taught to grow to be one body. Well, a body is, one piece of a body is fully dependent on the other pieces. There is no independence in my right arm. So we grow in fellowship with each other as we get interdependent. And this has permeated our culture. I mean, what does everyone want? I want all the tools that I could ever need so I don't have to borrow from anybody. Why? Why would I work to spend that extra money when my good friend Robert has that tool? <laughs> maybe, maybe I can go half-seas with him. Maybe we can both buy it. Right? But our culture is one for independence. The other misconception in here is that we're wired to say that as you go through life, your savings builds. We're on an upward traje trajectory. And, yeah, and, 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 and we expect to grow in independence. As, as we progress in life, rather than to grow in dependence, grow in dependence on God. Last one. God does not intend for victorious Christians to suffer financial need. This is actually a, a weak one as well. It's one that Satan can only get away with in the Western world, right? Because in the rest of the world, where hundreds of millions of Christians live a subsistence existence, they would not buy this, they would laugh at it. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world that have enough food in their house for the next day or two, and that's it. And if they don't go out to work, they don't get to eat three days from now. And they have no expectation that becoming a Christian relieves them of that. So, you can say it's a weak one, but... It, it, it sells here. And I think a lot of us think, well, if I'm just trusting in God, he'll provide. I'll have money. I'll have, what, I'll have everything. And we tend to think, I'll have everything I want. And actually, when you go through the teaching in Scripture, our Christian life is not one of just getting better and better financially. Go back to the start. What does God want for us? He wants to become like Jesus. Will he take away your wealth to make you more like Jesus in a heartbeat? That's a great trade as far as he's concerned. Uh, he'll, 
use any kind of pressure to get us to become more and more like Christ. So in our Christian life, he will actually use cycles, times of prosperity, and he'll use times of hardship. He'll use them both to try and make us more like Jesus. And there are things for us to learn and be taught in each cycle. Paul says it here. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Ecclesiastes says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. A day of adversity is not a bad time. It's God working to make us more like Christ. A day of prosperity is not, yoo-hoo, I can let go. God has got some direction there. He wants you to learn and grow in that as well. A few more slides. So if I summarize the world's purposes for money, right? Money provides security, independence, power, influence. I couldn't find Bible verses of why we should chase these. So what are God's purposes for money? To provide basic needs. Obviously, this is one, right? We are to provide for our families, for anyone that's dependent on us. Money is a vehicle to that. It's not wrong to provide for your family. Um, I'm not suggesting in any of this that people should take vows of poverty. <laughs> but money is to provide basic needs. Interestingly, though, we should pray for needs, not money. The other interesting thing in the Bible, what are basic needs? In the Bible, it's food and clothing. Stop. And if you think about it, if I have food, clothing, and shelter, I have everything I need to live. I can live a spirit-filled, joyful, peaceful life if I have food, clothing, shelter. So Jesus emphasized this. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus spoke, don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about you, what you will wear. All through scripture, when, you're, when you hear poverty, it's people without food, without clothing, without shelter. We're so rich here, I would say nobody here is hungry. So we extend our needs past that. Our needs become all kinds of things. I'm guilty of that. I need that. Second purpose of money in the Bible is to confirm direction. There are many, one of the, one of the signposts that God has put up over and over is warnings about debt. Our society, of course, has the opposite. Buy it now, pay later. Don't have the money, no problem. Zero down, zero interest. To the extent you believe that lie, you're pretty quick just to crash through that signpost. That's not a barrier to me. 
So let me give an example of how this could work. Let's say I need a car. And in this example, a disclaimer, uh, some of you might have a need for a car. I'm not saying that nobody should drive or have a car. This is just an example. Um, but in our get what you want now culture, we often fail to recognize the direction that God is giving us through practical limitations. So if I'm thinking, I need a car, I'm guilty of not stopping and thinking, and I don't have the money. I'm assuming I don't have the money, I don't have a means to pay for a car. Maybe God is using that restriction because the activity I want the car for is one that he doesn't want me to engage in. Maybe he's trying to keep me from harm. And there's reasons why he doesn't want me to have the car. So he hasn't provided the money for it. Maybe there's someone I could carpool with. And I know, I'm independent. I, I could carpool with Kevin, but he leaves so darn early, and then I gotta leave when he wants to leave, and I want, I want to be independent. But maybe there's someone I could carpool with, and God is sitting there looking down and seeing the blessing that will come from that relationship, and saying, I, I just wanna get you guys together. We crash right through that. We're not considering often finances as a way that God confirms direction. So the supply of money or the lack thereof is a major signpost of God's direction. Another purpose for money that's woven through the Bible is to give to Christians. Uh, a big example of this is in the early church, right? All through the church, they gave to each other. Uh, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, because of their Judaism that they came from, didn't speak to the Gentiles. They, they, they separated themselves from that. Then they came on bad times. What did the Gentile Christians do? They took up offerings. They sent money to Jerusalem. I got a feel that that broke down some barriers. It, uh, one of God's purposes for money is to unite Christians. It, it's a tangible way of showing love. Can you imagine the impact if one church in Perth set aside some of their own objectives and gave money to another church that was in need? What would that do for unity in the community? in the Christian community. So money's a very powerful way to unite people, to unite Christians, and that's shown all through scripture. Whoop. Can you see me? And God doesn't want me to go to the last slide. There we go. Another purpose that God has for money is to illustrate his power. God's promised in the Bible that we will not be in need. We will not be without food. We will not be without clothing. He commands us to care for each other and for brothers and sisters in need. 
And over and over again, people that have been in need and trusted God experienced supernatural filling of that need. It strengthens their faith, and it's a witness to the non-Christian community. Again, if I go back to Acts, the Christians were living together. They were sharing their possessions. God was doing miraculous things about them, amongst them, and what happened? The church grew. It's, it's a real counter to the lies of society for the world to see a group of people that are financially independent, whether or not they make a lot of money, and who aren't worried about their futures, who see God providing for them supernaturally. That, that is a real powerful magnet for people around the world, and it goes in the face of the lies that they've been digesting. So that's it. True financial freedom, love, joy, peace. That's what God wants for us more than anything. We cannot let the lies of our culture or our own desires get in the way of that. That's the goal. That's what God has for us that can't be bought. Thanks.